This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I am down for a socially distant but in-person podcast today, taking advantage of proximity here in Colorado for a conversation with Jake Gardner, head uh, brewer for West Bound and Down. Welcome to the podcast, Jake. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Jake, most recently, the 2019 Great American Beer Festival won uh, silver medals for Double Barrel Louis Barley Wine. And in a you know, really easy category that nobody competes in, um, an American double IPA won a silver medal for Westbound double IPA. So we're going to talk about some of those beers through this. Congratulations, by the way. That was totally sarcastic. Uh, <clears throat> um, some, some excellent accomplishments. They won uh, Mid-Sized Brew Pub of the Year last year on the on the backs of those medals. So, of course, we're going to talk about those. I don't think we've ever really talked about barley wine here on the podcast. And so uh, I don't know how we've gotten into this three years later. Actually, I guess this is, yeah, episode 154 that we're doing right now. And somehow we've never, never talked about barley wine. But uh, you get to be the first, Jake. I'll take it. Yeah, it's something I've uh, been very passionate about for a long time. Um, so, yeah, love to talk about it. Cool. We're going to nerd out on that. We're going to nerd out on West Coast IPA. Uh, I've been uh, enjoying some of the recent Westbound series they've put out with the Western Conference All-Stars and uh, getting creative with some of their brewing peers in that kind of American West Coast IPA space. Before we do it, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partnered with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more brewers that you've heard on this very podcast all trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they've created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. So Jake, the way we normally start off the podcast is talking about you and uh, how you got here, where you are today now as head brewer for Westbound and Down. Talk to me a little bit about your brewing history and, uh, and how you ended up here. Uh, well, I moved to Denver after going to school at CU Boulder. Um, and admittedly, I was, I was planning on just taking a year off and, and going back to school to get a PhD in English. And, um, two things I'd moved in, uh, with my girlfriend, now wife, and I needed a job. In the meantime, um, I was an avid home brewer, uh, at CU and, and some homebrew clubs. And, um, anyway, I didn't really care how much money I made just one year off. So applied to Great Divide and Breckenridge Brewery. Um, Breckenridge was offering 50 more cents an hour. So I took that job. Um, stacking boxes and working on the bottling line and 
worked there for about a year and a half, um, all the way up to junior brewer position, um, which I think they kind of just made up for me um, <laughs> yeah. because it was yeah. uh, pretty aggressively passionate about it. Um, I started doing some work for Cicerone at the time. They were like a brand new thing. Sure. Um, and was just like a super nerd and took that test and they like called me and were like, who, who are you? Do you want to work for us? And I was like, yeah, I'm 22 and I, you know, work for Breckenridge Brewery. So got into some beer history, um, stuff with them and, um, knew I wanted to do something smaller where I could be a, a bigger fish in a small pond. And in that first year, um, you know, my wife didn't want to move to the, to the, programs that I get into for English and I had fallen in love with craft beer and realized I wanted it to be more than just a hobby and you could potentially get away with doing this for your whole life. So figured I'd give a hack at it. And, um, around that time I was making some beers, um, with Tim Myers at strange brewing, which was just up the road from where Breckenridge was in those days. This is pre ABM Bev, you know, 471 Calumeth location. Right. Um, and, you know, everybody at Breck was amazing to me back then. And, um, and a lot of them were running around and going to strange after work. It was right up the street. And that's when, um, you know, extremely small micro brews like this nano brew kind of concept was just on the horizon. Like people thought it was nuts that Tim had opened a brewery making one barrel of beer at a time. And this was 2011. Yeah. Um, and so I'd go by for his one barrel Wednesdays and got to know him, started making beer with him. And one thing led to another. I met Stephen Kirby, who I wish I'd listened to that podcast to know um, exactly what he said about me. But he said I, good things. It's all good things. You never know that guy, though. So, um, no, I imagine it was good things. He's still uh, one of my best buddies yeah. um, and an you know, amazing guy. Um, but I met him. He, he's been good friends with Tim for forever. And I met him there and my passion for, um, for beer history, um, kind of connected me with Steve. Um, so, you know, we started talking and he was talking about how he was opening this brewery hogshead and they were going to be making cast conditioned beers, which seemed totally nuts at the time. I mean, there weren't yeah, even people yeah. making beer on 10 barrel systems really then, you know, I mean, there were, but it was only if it was a brew pub, it was. It's right. a very unique concept that Tim had going. So then Steve's talking about, you know, making cast conditioned beers and, and recreating some of these, you know, Barclay Perkins style, you know, porters and, 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 uh, best bitters. And, um, I was really drawn to that. And it was, uh, it was kind of a weird time in craft beer where, you know, West coast IPA had been taken to an extreme, there weren't like a lot of new avenues and these guys were opening these tiny places and, uh, trying to do crazy stuff. And, um, so I met Steve and we started making some beer together, you know, just for fun. Like after I'd worked the graveyard shift at Breckenridge, I'd go up and make beer at Hogshead. And he's like, you're hired. Do you want to be our head brewer? So, um, had the privilege of being the head brewer there from 2012 to 2017. Um, and learned a lot from Steve, who has a you know crazy background, um, not the traditional background sure, here of sure. a lot of in craft beer. So it was fun learning from a guy who you know was reading all these ancient brew books and 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 was all very inspired by uh, Shut Up About Barkley Perkins. I don't know. Yeah, Ron Pattinson. Yeah, yeah. he's an awesome guy. We got sure. to make a couple collab beers with him while I was at Hogshead. 
So anyway, uh, during that time, uh, my three partners in Westbound and Down were Mud Club members at Ad Hogshead. And when I started making Belgian style beers and, you know, West Coast IPA, um, sometimes not to Steve's liking, um, <laughs> but, you know, if anytime he was not paying attention, I'd be like, yeah, we got another lager and a uh, new double IPA coming out. And um, we'll put a couple on cash to keep you happy. The, the uh, picture of, of Stephen, you know, reacting to that is just priceless. In my head, it's just priceless. I can just imagine um, the shit that he gave you for that. Oh, it was it was un, it was almost unbearable. But I think that's why we always get along because I would right. I would put up with anything, but it didn't necessarily change how I was going to behave. So um, I'd be like, No, yeah, that's we we won't do it again. And then a week later, I'd be like, Well, I was inspired, <laughs> and we did it again. Um, and I'd come up with crazy excuses back then. Like uh, I was working with, um, man, I'm going to blank on her name right now, but a flavor scientist at the Denver Science Museum at the time. And she was doing uh, some talks with uh, Andy Parker at Avery. Yeah, yeah. That led me to an excuse to make an English IPA versus American IPA. Well, really, they were both just West Coast IPAs, but just using hops from those countries. And... Uh, for this class we taught at Big Beers and it created this whole series that then made making tons of IPA at Hogshead somehow excusable. <laughs> um, but yeah, so was at Hogshead anyway, met the guys at Westbound. They said they were going to put a brewery in Idaho Springs. I told them I thought that was not a very good idea, admittedly. Um, <laughs> I didn't understand the throughput of traffic there yeah. or the fact that everybody that lives in Colorado drives right past that. Yeah, winter uh, and summer. Winter and summer. So I got involved with those three guys, and we started designing And at first, admittedly, like I said, you know, my time at Hogshead was incredible. I lived three blocks away uh, during the time I was at Brewer there. Um, so I initially told them I would love to be involved um, but I was, was it was five years ago. So I was 27, um, five years ago in December. And I was like, yeah, I can just do both. I'll be your head brewer and hogsheads. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. Um, I had just, um, I was engaged then, not married. And, um, that was awesome, but it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, I was literally crazy. brewing beer like 85 hours a week, uh, working all the weekends. Um, but at the time, you know, uh, I was either brewing beer or drinking beer. Um, and that was like, unfortunately at 32, I'm running out of the energy to, I can do it five days a week, but, but seven is a little bit of a grind. Um, so I didn't want to do anything else. So it was awesome. Um, but then, you know, when I realized I hadn't seen my wife in a couple months, at some point it kind of hit a point where, um, Hogshead was, you know, had their own demands and Westbound was growing and, uh, needed even more of my time and there was no time left. So, um, that's when I had to go. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how, how we got started with Westbound. And it's fun, you know, that we started with some guys that were just drinking, uh, Edda's pale ale, which is a beer I named after my dog at Hogshead on cask. And we're like, we should start a brewery together. Um, and that's, that is legitimately how it started. So 2017 then for Westbound and down what's, uh, 15, 2015 for Westbound. So there's a two year overlap oh, okay. where I was doing both. Um, maybe not, a full two, but it was right, like right. 19 months. Let's talk a little bit about brewing, but before we do that, uh, this episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs. 
purveyors of the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Whether you want to add depth to your next golden triple with classic notes of cinnamon, pepper, and clove, or artfully layer exotic, zesty grains of paradise into a perfect ale, adding botanicals to your brewing is an easy way to customize a delicious flavor profile. Mountain Rose Herbs has been providing organic herbs and spices to chefs, herbalists, and dedicated brewers for more than three decades. Learn more at mountainroseherbs.com and get 10% off your first order with the code craftbeer10. Also, Yakima Valley Hops is your hop source, whether you're brewing five gallons or five barrels. Get all the hops you want when you want them. They source the highest quality hops from the Yakima Valley and premium growing regions around the world so that you have access to the largest hop portfolio possible, even the hard-to-find varieties like Citra, Nelson Sauvin, and Galaxy. Homebrewers, visit yakimavalleyhops.com and wholesale accounts. Find them at spothops.com. So naturally, Jake, I want to talk about uh, West Coast IPAs first. This is something that uh, you won a silver medal for for last year for Westbound uh, Double IPA. Uh, it's something that you've kind of been building and expanding on with the Western Conference All-Stars series, bring collaboration West Coast IPAs. Um, with folks like Melvin and Barley Browns and uh, Cannonball Creek and some others. Um, so talk to me a little bit about um, how, uh, in the time that you've been brewing West Coast IPA, w- how you've watched the style shift. Yeah, I think, um, like I said in the beginning, I think, you know, West Coast IPA really defined, you know, American craft beer for all the time I've known it, which is, you know, 2005 on 2006 on, and, um, has kind of been, um, morphed into a ton of different things. And hazy IPA is, is certainly, um, even if it's distinctly different, I think has caused a, a resurgence of West coast IPA, but also a resurgence with a new attitude and new changed ideas of what it can be, um, what it should be and what's enjoyable to drink. And I think overall in craft beer, um, I know we're going to talk about barley wine, so that will be disparate from what I'm getting ready to say. But I think there's also been a return to people, you know, finding beers they can drink um, and, you know, and drink multiple of. Um, So, you know, I've been passionate about West Coast IPA since I got into craft beer as a home brewer. um, But we've kind of saw it go through this phase of these you know, bittering wars who could make these more rip tongue ripping bitterness, um, to the point where it kind of almost thought the style was going to be dead because the beers became almost unpalatably bitter. And somehow that was made you cooler if you were doing it, which was an absurd track. Um, now, you know, maybe in a decade, we're going to look back on what, uh, you know, I'm doing with, you know, Alex Bach and Phil and now Derek, and, uh, you know, our buddies at Comrade and Cannonball, and we love making beers with those guys here locally. And we're going to think, man, that was absurd. The dry hopping rates we were doing were totally ridiculous. No, no you're not going to look back at this that way. You are going to look back at, wait, we put that much sugar and finishing gravity in our stouts. You know, that will be, there will be regret had in future generations of brewers, but it's going to be about, un, you know, re-fermented fruit, uh, fruit puree. And it's going to be about just massive finishing gravities on these pastry sets. But I digress. Make sure your A1C tests are covered on your uh, <laughs> on your uh, medical insurance. Right, right. With those beer styles. 
So I'm not worried so much about you and looking back on West Coast IPA and and with any kind of regret. No, I think that's important that, you know, what you said, I think that um, our understanding of quality of bitterness and our understanding of drinkability was influenced by New England style IPA. And, you know, whether it's late hopping techniques and ways to get different flavors out of hops, certainly that style has changed the way that brewers approach West Coast IPA. And I guess if we really go back and look at the history, there were brewers brewing West Coast IPA who were also exploring those ideas simultaneously, I think, with a lot of New England style brewers. And, you know, and so I think those kind of the evolution, it wasn't the, you know, New England style, they made it happen for West Coast IPA, but it was more like, you know, it was happening at the same time and ideas were feeding off of each other and it just moved together that kind of way. Without a doubt. I mean, you look at guys, um, basically everybody who's ever made beer at Pizza Port Carlsbad um, were, you know, running with ideas along this line of very dry, um, fairly delicate um, IPAs that had very firm bitterness and firm in the way that, you know, by the time your glass is back on the table, you're like, Hmm, that does have a little bitterness and then it's back in your face and you're drinking more. And I think that's what we've come to realize is that a lot of these beers, um, they, they need firm bitterness to keep you coming back for more. But the definition of what it firm bitterness is, has been kind of recontextualized to be something that's, um, just enough for counterbalance and then find that and then maybe go a little past it. And there, I think you're in the sweet spot. Whereas previously, I think people saw some sort of umph or strength in their beer that was maybe, I don't know, some sort of bizarre ultra masculine thing of like, Oh, I like them sure, really bitter. Sure. I think and, we can blame stone, you know, to some degree for that, for this kind of arrogant bastard approach to like, let's make it unapologetically in your face. And if you don't like it, then it's not for you. And that kind of branding and outsider stance. And it's not just stone. There's plenty of others that are also on that same kind of wavelength, but that was a, you know, I think a, a, a relic now of history where, We've realized, and, and just from a straight business perspective, like brewers sell more beer when you can put a beer down and you want to drink another one. You know, I mean, that that's just, it's straight up mechanics and it's, it's, it makes so much sense on a conceptual level, but those beers that, you know, you had to scrape your tongues off after them were just, just not drinkable beer after beer. Um, talk to me a little bit about the evolution again of how you have started and, and began reshaping that idea of bitterness in your West coast IPAs, you know, and where you were 2012, 2013, and then some of the steps that you took to, uh, to where, you know, get to where you are today. Well, I mean, admittedly at different points in my life, I've been, you know, more of a beer geek, some points less during almost all of the time frame you've named. I've drank a lot of beer at Cannonball Creek, um, and a lot of beer at Comrade. I think they both have pretty distinctly different approaches. Yeah. Um, but without a doubt, those, um, Marks and Hodge are, you know, probably two of the biggest influences on me making West coast IPA. Um, and I think they're in distinctly different camps. Um, but I think, you know, during that period of time, you've seen, it's almost like, um, while people were exploring more dry hopping rates, later whirlpool addition to the point where literally they're cool pulling it and they're not even adding it at full temperature during whirlpool, at the same time, I think you're seeing West Coast brewers seeing, um, you know, legitimate use of those techniques while also realizing I've still got great counterbalance, um, you know, to mouthfeel, um, 
and and that ability to want to pick your glass back up, lowering the IBUs five, then ten, then suddenly you know you're realizing. And I think a lot of these brewers, the two I named plus us, I mean, we're certainly not getting IBU tests on all these beers. So, right. I mean, it's a theoretical 40, 35 really? uh, on a lot of them, but, you know, could be higher, could be lower. Um, you know, we're using different Probably tastes rules. a little bit higher, you know, in terms of, you know, but partly I imagine that's impacted somewhat by the fact that they're dry, you know, yeah, whereas. Perceived bitterness too. I mean, anytime you get those dry hopping rates up that high, I know a lot of people talk about, um, you know, bitterness pickup and dry hopping. I certainly think at extreme levels, that's, um, you know, not only theoretically possible, but it's happening. But I think also you're just seeing perceived bitterness. I mean, I think um, a lot of the beer drinkers who are drinking these IPAs get very in tune with expectations and other beers they've had. And as dry hopping rates increase, um, you start to believe it's going to be bitter, even without any, I mean, that's, I think, a lot of those East Coast IPAs, hazies, were so shocking at first and had so much kind of curb appeal because it was mind-boggling. It smelled like it was going to be so bitter, and right. then it wasn't. Um, and that was like, whoa, you know, like this is so outside of the box of what we were expecting. Um, and so drinkers didn't have a frame of reference from which to actually, you know, to even understand it, but that created a, a certain level of interest. And then I think, too, the biggest thing I've seen, you know, since I've been making uh, West Coast IPA professionally, is just how much more knowledge there is to the game. Like previously, it was like there'd be a new hop and everyone would jam a ton of it in. Um, but there wasn't a lot of theoretical approach to it. People weren't trying to understand hop lineage. They weren't trying to understand um, oil composition. Certainly not playing with thiols, thiol precursors, biotransformation. These were all, you know, I mean, words I'd never even heard of till maybe three years ago. Um, right. So I'm not saying no one knew about it. Obviously, white winemakers down in, you know, New Zealand have been messing around with those kind of terms for quite some time. Um, but then those approaches of of trying to, you know, select yeast strains with, uh, with enzyme uh, potential for biotransformation, um, working with hop combinations, um, even if you've never used the hop before, but realizing, you know, uh, what kind of oxygen fraction of the hydrocarbons uh, or, or one type and how to match them up with another hop maybe you've never used, but the puzzle pieces seemingly will fit because of, of other beers you've made before. And I think when the science um, is more applied, and I certainly don't claim to be any sort of hop oil expert, um, but, you know, with certain tools that are out there these days, you know, Scott Janice's book, The New IPA, um, obviously there's some limitations on his, I don't know if anybody hasn't been to that website, it's pretty impressive homebrewer or otherwise, I think it's just scottjanis.com, but, um, he's got like a whole spider chart prediction of, you know, yeast strains and certain hops and where you use them and what it'll look like, um, that was not the world of making West Coast IPA in right. 2015. Right. Um, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, citrus, cool. I'm going to use a ton of it. You know, like that was like the limitation of thought. Um, but I think, you know, you're seeing people kind of try to draw out these nuances of hops. Um, and I think when we're thinking about uh, any beer, really, for that matter, at Westbound, I like to think about two different um, kind of approaches to beer. Um, and some beers you approach with, uh, 
a very fine window, a very defined set of goals. Um, so with the barley wines that we're going to talk about, I would describe before we'd ever made that at Westbound, um, the Louis series was a beer where there was a very defined goals. We knew what English barley wine tastes like historically. We knew we wanted it to be bigger in alcohol, more akin to, you know, um, deal with the devil or, uh, mother of all storms from Pelican and that, you know, that same malt bill and, and ester profile, but in a much bigger sense. We knew it was gonna go in a barrel and we knew we were gonna put it in a bottle and people were gonna age it for a long time. Like you were telling me, you still got the, the OG double barrel Louis. Um, so, you know, there's a, like, when you're thinking about that, you've got a number of different goals to accomplish and some of them contradict each other. Um, you know, the beer in the, it's gonna be in a barrel, there's gonna be oxygen. Uh, we got a microbiology issue potentially. Uh, we've got high alcohol. We want a strong ester profile, but we want fusel alcohols low. Um, you know, and how are we going to manipulate all these things? And we can talk about that more later. But yeah, damn, damn it, Jake! Don't try to segue me to barley wine. Yeah, we haven't no, talked no, no, about no, West but this, Coast. I'm like, coming yeah, full no. circle here. Let me <laughs> let me come back. So you know, just because I didn't know they were going to be so segmented, but these things connect because those are really defined goals, right? That's like 10 hoops. We got to jump through. Right. Um, and there might be more than one path through it, but it will be very clear how we're going to navigate to, you know, accomplishing all those goals. Conversely, um, when we approach West coast IPA in a rotational series, um, with in some cases, hop, uh, hop varieties we've never used malt varieties we've never used, um, or, you know, a new type of hop product, cryo hops, what have you. Um, the goals are more broad. I mean, the goals are, we know we want really dry beer that's very approachable and complex. Um, but, you know, I've been um, going to some flavor classes with Sweet Bloom Coffee, awesome coffee roaster here, just as like kind of a fun mental space to be, you know, away from beer, but still in touch with your palate. Sure. And those guys use this term clarity and they use it very differently than brewers do. Not like how clear is the liquid, but um, connecting a flavor in your, you know, on your tongue to a, a specific word. So, you know, in the case of IPA, maybe citra hops, if you just said it's citrusy, that would be very mild clarity. Whereas if you said cara cara oranges, that would be very precise clarity, connection to a distinct thing. And so when I say there's broad goals versus very defined goals, it's okay, I think, in some ways to approach some of these West Coast IPAs that it's like, we're on this exploration. We've never made the beer before. We've got, you know, we've got a very good idea of where we're going, um, but we're not sure whether we got Tangelo oranges or Cara Cara oranges. We're hoping it's defined when we get there. Um, but we think we can make something great. And, and you can envision in your head. It's like, never seen a blue horse on fire but I know what all those three things look like separately. So I can imagine them together. Um, and in that kind of same way, we kind of approach these, this whole Western conference all-star series. And it's fun because a lot of times we're doing it with other amazing brewers who they're on the ride too. They, they haven't seen the, the blue horse on fire and we're just going to try to figure out how we get there. And it'll be, you know, a yeast strain we're familiar with or a hop combination they're familiar with and maybe a, base malt variety both of us have been wanting to use but haven't had a good excuse to um and a lot of these have been in the COVID era so it's like 
you know, a Zoom call, we ship them some beer in the mail, they ship us some beer in the mail that they think has been either they've made that's inspired them. And we kind of try to get to this space that neither of us really know what it looks like. And uh, it's kind of cool to be doing both those. Because like I said, I think they're very different approaches. Um, and at least to make that first batch of beer, I think they're both very valid approaches. Um, I do think on the second and third iterations, it's important to, you know, if, if we were to remake any of these Western Conference All-Stars, um, I think we've hit a couple of them out of the park. If I, you know, I think we've worked with some amazing brewers. If we hadn't, it would be almost embarrassing with the lineup of people we've been making beer with. Um, but I think you've got a chance to, um, you've always got a chance to improve. I mean, we've, we've made beers that we've made 80 batches of, and we're still tankering with it. So that's where you kind of take that broad and make it um, the more tangible and the more defined and the goals become, you know, very critical both in numbers and in flavor profile and in how these beers stand up in a can now that we're canning beer. So. Sure, sure. Well, let's, um, let's try to move from broad into some more specifics talk about some of the, um, you know, parameters that you are tweaking through that, uh, Western conference all-stars series, and also talk about, you know, some of that kind of molding, shaping and honing process around West, uh, Westbound double IPA that, uh, you feel may have moved it, um, you know, off of the final table and into that, that kind of metal position, you know, as we, I talked to Ben from Breakside about this a while back, back in, I guess in February, you know, the same kind of thing, like he has his own process of figuring out how to optimize for pleasantness is, you know, is the way that he refers to it. I'm always curious about how you move through that honing process. So let's talk about some of those details for a minute. Before we do that, ABS commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry, so they're giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer live on December 5th, which happens to be also National Repeal Day. Go to www.abs-commercial.com, click on the Keg Viking page, and fill out the contest form for your chance to win. Also, if you enjoy this podcast and want to support our mission to bring you valuable insights from the world's best brewing minds, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to do it. Get a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email, and more go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. All right, Jake, during that break, uh, you grabbed us some beers and just poured a uh, beer that is as of yet unreleased, but it'll be released soon. It's a new edition of the Western Conference All-Stars, and it's a collaboration with uh, La Cumbre out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yeah, so this is, uh, we released these in pairs. Um, it's kind of fun what when we started this series, like there were no sports because of COVID and we thought it was kind of fun to have um, our group of brewers like loves kind of talking shit to each other. And there's a lot of competitive nature between just us and a lot of our relationships with, you know, Beerstadt and Comrade and Cannonball here locally. And, and like Mike Albashan at Pizza Port and some of the best buddies in the industry kind of have this competitive nature about our beers. So it felt fitting with no sports to kind of do a collab with two people at one time in a common style and then let people kind of, um, you know, have this competitive edge that, you know, if you get two beers from a series at one time, everyone's going to pick a favorite. So there's a natural, um, you know, competition there, but yeah, this was a, this was a fun one. 
uh, Irway down there is a hell of a brewer and somebody that definitely has influenced me from the beginning. Um, I was just saying before I knew whether we were on air or not, we just canned this yesterday. So excuse a little bit of its bottle shock. I expect it to be a little more explosive aromatically. We've kind of learned along the way that just as the Germans understood filter shock and bottle shock, you know, some 50 years ago, that the same kind of theory applies to packaged uh, West Coast IPA or any any kind of hoppy beer. Um, not that the beer isn't great right off the canning line, and I think romantically we wish that was sure, its freshest sure. moment. You think fresh, fresh, fresh. Trust me, we're still fresh, fresh, fresh. That's why, you know, the born-on date's right on top of every four-pack holder. Um, but... I think three to five days later is usually the sweet spot. Um, sometimes as much as two weeks, um, but definitely like in that first 30 days, I think is where all IPAs shine the most. Um, but it's kind of interesting seeing some of these beers where off tank, they're explosive. And then, you know, you drink it in a can, like the first night you get home, you're like, this is really good. It's not jumping out of the glass. And then like 72 hours later, it's just back to like, boom, you're like, oh, that's the beer we thought we made. There Interesting. We yeah. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about some of the fine tuning that you've done over the last couple, you know, two years on IPAs that have helped, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, before we started talking that you'd over the last couple of years of entering, you know, targeting the double IPA, targeting the IPA uh, categories that you'd had a lot of luck in competitions getting to the final table and you just weren't able to kind of breakthrough and get into that, that metal space, um, you know, talk, what was it, you know, what have been some of the factors that you've been able to kind of push around in order to try to make them a little bit more appealing to both stand out, but also, um, hit the middle, you know, hit these styles in ways that, uh, you know, people, judges will relate to them as firmly a part of that style, while still having a unique character that sets them apart and makes them interesting in a, you know, kind of environment where people are drinking lots of these beers. Yeah. I think, um, you know, obviously two JBFs and one world beer cup and, you know, three final tables and no, no victories. It's, uh, you're kind of beating your head against a wall, um, without a doubt. And especially too, cause like I mentioned before, you only get the notes from the first round. So they'll usually just say, you know, check all the boxes and tell you they really liked it or world-class example of style and you walk away with nothing. Um, and so, you know, it was hard to use. Any for all the home brewers out there, it is just as frustrating for professional brewers yeah, yeah, totally. who get yeah. notes on uh, competition industry uh, entries as it is for home brewers. It's, it's, I mean, even from Humber it is, it's, it's easy to use when you're doing terribly. It is, uh, easy to take. Um, there's usually a lot of good criticism and a lot of learning lessons and, and going from good to great is, um, been a difficult battle and something, you know, we're, we're not satisfied with where double IPA is. And I don't think we ever will be. I mean, we, we have certainly made a lot of similar batches. Um, but we're always, like trying someone else's beer and looking for something new. And I think some of the tangible things we've done with that beer um, is, you know, we've played with the hop combination is uh, Galaxy Mosaic Enigma uh, with Citra and the just on the hot side with 10 minutes left in the boil. Um, it's a uh, 90 minute kind of old school. I know we have a bittering edition, which is, Almost unheard of these days. Um, I'm shocked. Yeah. I mean, me too. Honestly, if I was making the same recipe again, there would not be a 
a first word addition hop. Um, first word with nugget from Crosby, awesome hop, underrated, really great clean. With birds. nugget, you're not just using extract or magnum or something big like that. Uh, no, I mean, nugget's pretty big. Um, I've just always liked it. It's kind of one of those things, admittedly, it's somewhat of a fail safe. Um, certainly have used other hops there, but I just year after year, it's very consistent, very clean, really driving, uh, bitterness that's it's controllable and doesn't uh bring any of that harsh neck kind of bitterness you can get so that's been my go-to the neck bitterness you know what i'm talking about though you know where it's <laughs> like where it's it's on your palate it's off your palate is how i want bitterness to be in west coast ipa and right. i think um certain hot varietals are more um likely even if the the data when you because that's a beer that we make enough that we have gotten it um lab tested for IBUs quite often, they'll come back, you know, within three to four, the same, but different, um, hop varietals tend to have, you know, uh, different ways of pronouncing their type of bitterness. And I find nuggets to be firm, somewhat soft in the way, like in its perception and then on and off your palate. And that I think, um, you know, double IPA is a style that I think, um, is not, very sessionable. Like you think of it as being powerful and overwhelming. And so one of my goals in creating that beer was to make a beer that fit that style, but drank like the opposite that drank like, you know, seven, you know, that drank like alpha 32 from cannonball, but it was 9.3% instead. Um, so you wanted it to be on and off your palate. I mean, as much as you can accomplish that with making, you know, 18.7 Play-Doh beer. Right, right. Um, so, you know, the ways we've done that since the beginning were uh, high use of dextrose. Um, we actually use some bigger malts than people might think. It's a blend of Maris Otter. It's actually predominantly Maris Otter with some Fireman Pilsner malt in it. Um, Touch of Vienna, which is kind of, uh, I think, a lot of people's classic, but all the guys on my brew staff, anytime I read a new recipe, they're like, let's guess. It's like, Two percent Vienna, three percent dextrose, and you pick the new baseball. And I'm like, "Fuck, they got me again." <laughs> um, but that's the recipe, you know. It blended two base malts, but that's the recipe. Um, but this time, like five and a half percent dextrose. So, you know, uh, mash lauder. I mean, it, it's it's basically a, a big single IPA with enough dextrose to you know move it up into the 18s and the Play-Doh and dry it out bone dry. And then, you know, over the years, I think we've you know, per style, but also just like our preferences have kept, like I was talking earlier, lowering those IBUs, um, moving more and more of the uh, hop load into the Whirlpool. And then of recent moving, even some of the, what was in the Whirlpool just into the dry hop. Um, and from a percentage basis, how much of your total hops load, you know, you have a rough number of pounds per barrel that you're throwing into this. And then how does that kind of break out percentage wise between, uh, hot side, cold side, and, you know, the various uh, stages of addition. So this is one of the beers where we use cryo hops. Um, so, you know, people understand those differently in terms of what their value association right, should right. be. But I want to say ballpark, you know, we've been as high as four and a half pounds, four pounds per barrel on the hot side. Um, and as low as four and a half or five pounds per barrel on the dry hop. And now we're in a, more of like a three and a half and just shy of seven, depending on finish yield on the dry hop. Um, and, uh, Boy, that's cheap beer. Yeah. We, we try to, <laughs> um, 
hopefully none of my other three partners will listen to this. Um, <laughs> no, but, um, you know, that's a beer. Like I said, it's uh, dear to our heart. We use some really cheap hops with Galaxy and Enigma from Australia <laughs> right. um, in it. And, uh, but no, I think what we've learned as we continue to make that beer, we had Vic's Secret in it for a while. And then when I became familiar with Enigma, I was like, this is the piece that's been missing. It needed that, like that punchy, I mean, don't get me wrong. Enigma can almost have that like rubbery kind of thing going on, like burnt tire kind of action, which is not very positive. But, um, when it's used, um, with a deft of hand with other more eccentric tropical hops, I think it gives it some punch. Um, and I think that's one of the tweaks we've made. Like I said, we've over the years moved up the amount of dextrose that's in it. Um, and, and we've continued to play with the ratios of every year. We change the ratios of galaxy, um, the three hops at play. I mean, ballpark, it's 40% galaxy, 40% mosaic, 20% enigma. But when we get new cuts of hops every year, we, you know, within five, just, you know, maybe even 10% move those numbers around to, um, accommodate changes in, in all of those. Cause you know, we're pushing to make over 1500 barrels of beer this year. And as anybody who's professionally brewing knows that makes us nowhere near getting to call right. what hops we get. Um, you know, luckily we've got some friends in some high places that help us out with some of those hops. Um, and I can't name who they are cause then everybody know to ask them. Um, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But, uh, but that, you know, so, you know, that's our approach every time is thinking about how we can, um, play with the flavors. Like I like to think of those beers once you've made them and you've got a goal is, you know, a bullet point. Um, you know, a lot of people, when I was at a big brewery like Breckenridge has very defined QC goals. Ours are simpler. Um, and realistically there's, you know, four guys that drink a lot of beer. Um, and we rarely have enough time to all sit it down and drink and analyze it for more than 10 minutes. And there's certainly no like white room or something we all do it in. Um, so I try to keep it simple and that's, you know, if you were to find the beer in your head when it's not near you, what makes up that beer? And for double IPA, I think it has very punchy hop aroma mixing, um, you know, some high notes of citrus with blueberry and then other tropical notes. Um, and I will admit I didn't have the clarity there because depending on the hop year, that can be papaya guava or it can be more kind of mango-y. Um, but we, we deal with the cards we're dealt uh, based with the Galaxy that year. Um, and then it's going to have that punchiness from the Enigma. Um, and then hopefully it's uh, palate wrecking almost in the mid-palate in terms of just hop flavor, just soaking through the retronasal finish. And then it's off your tongue immediately in terms of bitterness. And there's no fusel alcohols. So maybe I've made six bullet points. That might have been too many. But, all right you know, each batch of beer, are we accomplishing those goals? Um, and you know, if we get new hops in, um, and we're smelling them, you know, you can smell them, you can put them in some hot water and see what happens. But until you're making beer with them, a lot of those finer, uh, you know, corrections can't quite be made. And so that's the goal. Can you think about those bullet points and are you checking them off? Um, and you know, hopefully you are, I mean, that's, I think what makes you professional brewers, if you can smell, taste, read the analytics on the ingredients and then put a beer on the table that smells like what you said it was going to, or tastes like what you said it was going to. Um, so, you know, that's our goal of, of, of that beer. And I think, you know, as new ingredients have been available and like I said, as 
the public palate has changed towards lighter bitterness, it's actually almost made that goal more achievable because previously I might've had this notion three or four years ago that I, double IPA had to be one level of bitterness. And I've had a number of people remark to me, just, you know, drinkers of the bar, this double IPA is not very bitter. It's like, no, no, it is not. You know, I think, uh, we get it in like 58 to 60 IBUs, which is, you know, it's not a, not very many, but at a beer that starts at 19 Plato, 18, seven Plato, it's not very much. Um, so I think, you know, we've also changed our vision of what those bullet points should be or what defines West coast IPA, West coast double IPA. Um, that's kind of helped us shape where we want it to be. A lot of it's in the minutia. I mean, you, everybody's recipes have, you know, citrus, Simcoe and something, right, in them. Right. but it's like, when are you adding them? What are you looking for when you're picking hops and, um, you know, and how do they interact with yeast? I think that's something that's often, uh, underlooked. We used, uh, an English yeast 002, uh, or the Fuller's strain. And we think yeah. a lot of playing with a lot of those kind of, uh, orange marmalade, uh, red apple kind of ester profiles help us have what, you know, is kind of the westbound west coast vibe. It's the yeast and this beer is so well you're not as, using Caliel yeast for your uh for your uh no I maybe should have led with that. That's man, you're just burying the lead here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. This uh well you know I had to have a couple of people tell you you should talk to me. So it's like I'm not used to these things. For so. sure, for sure. <laughs> Let's talk about that because that's pretty incredible. Um you know how many different yeast strains have you been playing with to make your West Coast IPAs? And um you know as you've experimented with some of these yeast strains Let's talk about what you've learned through through using some of them. Uh, well, so dating back to Hogshead days, um, like I said, I was just basically sneaking those beers in. Um, and we used uh, A69 from BSI, which is the Timothy Taylor's strain, um, which obviously, you know, via Landlord or uh, Bolt Maker, I think is the hoppier one. But, you know, if you've ever been in England and had those beers fresh, they're shocking examples of, of uh, English pale ale. Um, so I was using those and, um, you know, just became so familiar with them. I mean, we use those two strains exclusively for everything I did for five years. So when picking what the house strain for Westbound was going to be, um, I've always been a fan of using more characterful yeast. Um, and, you know, I think in a lot of beer development, more important than anything is, is understanding your yeast, being able to manipulate it. You know, I mean, you're scoping it. Of course, but, um, but being able to, you know, pick, uh, pitching rates as a way to manipulate ester profile. Um, and we'll talk about that again in barley wine in a second, but it's like, that's a huge part of, um, really mastering, uh, any beer style. If you don't know everything about your yeast and that's going to make the whole beer, then you're not really in a good situation to win. So for me, some of it was necessity. It's what I already knew really well. Um, but I loved, you know, it was Westbound started at a time where fruit, fruitier hop character was taking to the forefront. So, um, you know, I know a lot of these English yeasts are every, all the craze and, uh, hazy IPA, but it was like something I've been working with for a long time and not like in a, in a non-similar way. Everyone's using these non-flocculent yeasts that won't dry out. And I think it's honestly made everyone scared of English yeast that try to do make West coast IPA. Like we were making the beer with Melvin and they're like, yeah, we'll use your house yeast, but I mean, is it going to be dry? And I was like, yeah, it's going to finish like 1.6 Play-Doh. They're like, what? 
It's like, yeah, dude, it's not everybody's got the, you know, stuff that won't flocculate that leaves five Play-Doh beer half finished. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, and some of that's training. We've had it banked. As Stephen has said, he makes bright beer, you know, with these English yeasts. And uh, those English yeasts, yes, they make very bright beer if you treat them in certain ways, for sure. Totally. And, and you know, West Coast IPA, like I'm not, I, over the years I've gotten softer on it. It should be clear-ish at least. Ours are very clear, but it should be, you know, I have no disrespect for when they're not clear, but. You know, that's part of the, now that there's been a clear division, you get it. Right, right. And we make both for the record. That's kind of how the West Coast, I, the Western Conference All-Stars started too, was, you know, the sports thing I mentioned, but we had started having success with hazy IPAs and um, I needed an excuse to get back to what I really loved. So, and, and our whole team did. I mean, uh, all the brewers, I think there are more passionate about West Coast IPA than hazy's. Um, that being said, we're beer nerds. So it's, it's awesome approaching any challenge like we were talking about. I mean, it's like I've had as much fun designing hazy IPA as I have any beer I've ever made. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I might drink two or three in a row when we have a new one come out. But like what I'm drinking when I'm like watching the NBA finals is definitely going to be either that hoppy pills or one of these West Coast IPAs. Um, that's what I'm drinking when, you know, turning the brain off and just drinking beer. So, um, yeah, I mean, this one's kind of interesting. This is a switch up on yeast, this Lacumbre beer that's coming out next week. Um, fun juxtaposition. Uh, Liquid Gravity, some badass guys. Um, head brewer there used to run Central Coast, who won a slaughter of medals uh, over like the last decade. It was at Firestone Walker before then. Um, and then Irway had this crazy new yeast, A72 from BSI, which I believe... Uh, you know, somebody fact check me. That's important these days if I'm wrong. But uh, I think that's the old anchor yeast, which is not anchor steam yeast. It's like what was used in Liberty Ale and Old Foghorn and those hmm. beers. So kind of a fun throwback. It was described to me by Jeff as being like... That's a, like more West Coast than West Coast. My yeah, gosh. I know, I know. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's you know, uh, but it's like nuttier and fruitier than Chico, but otherwise roughly behaves like it. Um, and he wanted to use Sabro in this, which I had previously put, you know, from the first time I smelled that hop, that was like a hazy IPA only hop. Um, but mixed with Citra Mosaic, kind of a classic West Coast combo. Um, and I think it's quite fun. I mean, the, this kind of Sabro we got uh, is more on the pineapple side uh, than like the toasted coconut side, more like pina colada mix vibe. And I think it plays quite nice with the citrus and kind of... Uh, funky almost cannabis mosaic vibes so uh fun beer and you know another example of like very broad goals right didn't you know new base malt new yeast sabro recontextualized for us um and this one was you know i mean call it a collab but this kind of just like an airway showcase he's like let me show you how you do it young. <laughs> let me show you how you do it young boy you listen to me yeah, and i was yeah. like hey man I, i'm i'm listening to you when he starts talking, we all just listen. Yeah, no, um, uh, a lot of uh, fantastic brewing knowledge in that guy. And I've had some fantastic conversations with him right here on this very podcast, as a matter of fact. Um, any other interesting uh, yeast that you've played with in this West Coast uh, IPA realm that uh, have produced results that were noteworthy? Yeah, um, we played out with the Cali Super Dry 
Um, you know, we've done, uh, I'm going to blank on the number right now, but the London Dry Ale, we've done London Ale 3, both for Hazy's and West Coast. Um, we've played around, like I said, we've done Tim Taylor's when we've gone session IPA. You've made some clear IPAs with London Ale 3? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Crystal clear. We've also made some hazy IPAs that ended up not being hazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we, uh, yeah, we didn't can that one. I think we just said it was like hazy-ish or something. Let's shift gears. I, we're at a point now where I think we need to start talking about barley wine. And I've I've sprung all of the West Coast IPA knowledge from you. I mean, I, I bet we could talk for another hour and still get even more I don't even really have any West Coast IPA <laughs> knowledge. So if you got any out, that was incredible. And like I said, it, anything I got, I just kind of stole from Cannonball and Comrades. It only so. took like 50 minutes to get into it. Yeah, we're not even doing it with Cali Ale yeast. But uh, I digress. Let's talk about barley wine and then specifically um, barrel-aged barley wine because it does seem that as we start talking about barley wine now as opposed to barley wine five or eight years ago or barley wine when I started drinking it, which was roughly, I don't know, 20 years ago, um, barley wine was a very different thing at that point. It was hoppy. It was very American. You know, um, barley wine now obviously for this entire category barrel aging seems to be a defining feature for it as people want to drink high abv beer in this 12 13 14 15 percent abv range generally speaking it makes sense from a value proposition and from a overall taste and conception you know proposition to throw it into barrels so as you're envisioning this beer, um, talk to me about that process of thinking about the beer that you're going to make, knowing that you're going to put it into barrels. It's probably going to sit there for 12 or 18 months, um, maybe longer, and then you know become a finished beer in the long run. How do you start thinking about it from a design perspective? So, yeah, I think, um, you know, first and foremost, I, like, could not have more passion for barley wine in old ale and um so it's it's awesome to get to talk about it and you know if four people listen it's awesome um but you know yeah these beers are fun to design and as i, I basically try to interrupt my own conversation with west coast ipa to try to talk about barley wine like 35 minutes so, ago solid attempt solid uh, attempt. you were like no 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 this is not the money maker talk about west coast ipa um which i get and that's why we do it but but barley wine i mean first and foremost um i was put off often in the beginning of my craft beer career and, and craft beer fandom um, with what barley wine was in America um, because it was these big, hoppy, ridiculous things, sometimes in barrels, sometimes not, unapproachable, undrinkable, and really inappropriate for any part of my personal lifestyle. Um, I don't know when you need ferociously hoppy, oaky, tannic, hoppy 14% beer. It's just there's not, you know. It's not like that's an after-dinner drink. You basically have to just be a crazy raging alcoholic to need that for any reason. Sure, sure. Um, I'm not saying big, big does not need to be ragged, hot, um, loosely uncontrolled, and uh, uh, you know all over the place. Yeah, totally. But um, I think um, you know as brewing science and and craft beers kind of art form in America has progressed, there's been, in my opinion, some of the best examples ever. Um, you know, that I find more enjoyable and it's why we make them as such. This is, I mean, we vaguely call this English style barley wine. Um, and by vaguely, I mean, it is 
influenced by and derivative from English style barley wine. And um, English style also meaning it's not that hoppy compared to American barley wine and expectations around that. Certainly. Yeah. And I think also meaning that there is a forward ester profile yeast character um, needs to be at least moderately prevalent to extremely prevalent. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of times when I'm hanging out with brewers and they come over to my house um, and they go into my wine cellar in my basement, I, you know, collect a lot of wine, um, love drinking scotch and of beer. It's just goose and barley wine is basically and a lot of barley wine um, and a lot of English barley wine. Um, but I love drinking. So uh, a lot of Thomas Hardy's and uh... Thomas Hardy. I love the uh, old, uh, the vintage ale series from Fuller's. Um, J.W. Lee's really just a lot of those Fuller's vintage ales, those they're hmm. bottle conditioned flawlessly. I mean, some phenomenal beers, um, interesting characters. So taking beers that are like influenced from that, building them way bigger, knowing they're going into a barrel. And then like I discussed 45 minutes ago or whatever, um, you know, these beers are fun because I think as a brewer, a lot of brewers get into brewing for a number of reasons. One of them usually is you like drinking beer, um, but it's like a problem solving contest of some sorts. It's like, you know, maybe you like Sudoku or whatever, or, you know, I don't know, maybe you're like really good at, you know, math and when they do the problem solving math questions, but it's like, I feel like brewers, like a lot of them, when I meet them, whether they're more of an artist approach or more of a scientific approach, and maybe they blend both, um, there's something about, you know, getting to the best solution and having the best product in the glass. And you've got to sometimes just, you know, solve and make right disparate ideas. And barrel-aged barley wine is a great example of that. Um, you know, you get a beer that you know people are going to age a long time in a bottle after you've aged it a long time in a barrel that's going to finish at a relatively high finishing gravity. So you've got a micro problem. No one wants it to be hot, but you're going to make it outrageously alcoholic uh, another hoop to jump through. And then it's got to still seem soft and creamy and very caramel forward and fit into, in my mind, like a dessert beverage scenario. Um, so how do you accomplish all those things at once? You know, you solve one problem, you create another. And that's kind of why these things are fun to think about. So when we were designing uh, the Louis series, admittedly, I had to kind of even look back on my own notes because we've been making this beer for three years now. And it's like, you know, that's the hard part. Like you make IPA and like I was saying, you know, you have an idea, it jumps into your head, you go down a rabbit hole, you read a ton of articles on the NBA website or whatever, you produce a beer and 16 days later, you're drinking said beer and you're drawing conclusions and reconsidering. And in this case, you know, 10 to 16 months pass before, you know, you're positive you've either done something right or made a mistake or know where you're going to change next year's. Um, so the learning curve is slower. Um, yeah, so you've potentially brewed next year's release before you've even really had the current year, uh, current release at a point where you are able to learn everything you want to learn from it. We're definitely pulling nails and tasting barrels and getting them sent, you know, for micro and everything. So we have an idea of what we've done right. and what we've corrected, but, um, and not to be too nerdy, but I think a lot of the crux of making high gravity beer 
for which unlike barrel aged stout where there's room to hide behind um hide behind's the wrong term but like there's so much going on with barrel aged sure, stout sure. and this is toffee caramel can you integrate oak um, can you keep fusel alcohols low and can you keep fruity esters high? That's kind of the whole beer, right? And if you can nail all those things, you almost have cognac in a glass that's thicker and it's awesome. So how can you make those things happen? Well, uh, a lot of that revolves around free amino nitrogen. And the reason for that being, um, you know, uh, and then also Strecker degradation, aldehyde formations in the in the kettle. So what I mean by that is, um, there's two ways people get these huge gravity beers, stouts or barley wines. They're, uh, moat for the most part, either adding, uh, um, you know, dry malt extract directly to it and, or boiling the hell out of these beers. Right. Um, I'm not of that school. Um, we are in double mash camp. Um, and for one reason, uh, boiling the hell out of these, uh, liquids uh, specifically with direct fire which is you know by space restrictions what we have um, is putting a lot of heat stress on this um, there's no way to keep all oxygen out even as you're cooling and you're inevitably removing a lot of the natural antioxidants in the beer um, and creating substrates for which other aldehyde formations will later form and again you've got to be thinking that way like when you're making pub beer at Hogshead, I was not thinking that way. All this beer was served insanely fresh, and none of it would make it past 90 days. But when you're making beer, you're going to put it in a barrel for 14 months, and then someone else, and then you're going to put it in a bottle for three months before you sell it. And then most of your customers' age bottles, like you said, you've got one that's now 16 months old. You got to be thinking about, you know, a lot of the stuff I thought was a joke when I was 21 years old, like hot side aeration, who knew, you know. Does that matter? Um, no, when you're making beer that everyone drinks in 60 days. Um, but all these finer details start to matter then. So um, I'm of the school double mash and never boiling more than two hours, um, which is on both stout and barley wine um, for these, these reasons uh, listed. That being said, I've now created a new hoop to jump through, which is, you know, if anyone out there is thinking of it who's a... Um, you know, thinking of free amino nitrogen, I've already mentioned, I've now just doubled up the amount of malt in it, not boiled the hell out of it. So my nitrogen levels on an all malt beer are now even higher. Um, and that's when we get into pitching rate and thinking about these other goals. So we've got, uh, we're looking for high ester um, production, which to me immediately makes me think low pitching rate, especially when working with English yeast strains. So I think another thing that a lot of breweries make the mistake of is they're dead ending. And, you know, to define that just meaning like that's the last pitch they're not going to harvest. Sure. Again. And it's the end of, you know, however many generations is normal there. Um, I think I would advise. They've stepped up through some smaller beers potentially. And now, boom, it goes into their barley wine. Yeah. And I, I'm a big fan of training, you know, like I we sometimes will harvest off double IPA for barley wine or for Russian Imperial Stout. Um, I think there's some value in that. It might just feel good. I'm not really sure. I can't prove it, but it feels good that it ferments 19 Plato before you give it 32. Um, but more importantly, that you know we're looking at yeast vitality and viability need to be low generation and exceptional um, because we're going to intentionally underpitch these beers, you know, to the tune of. I mean, we underpitch a Fuller's ESP yeast 002 in most of our beers to the tune of 
750,000 cells per mil per degree Plato. Um, usually if you go high gravity or if you have sugar involved, you'd go, you know, 1.25 to maybe 1.5 mil. I've known people that would right. pitch 2 million cells in the scenario that they're going 32 Plato. We have the opposite approach. I'll let the yeast be incredibly healthy. Um, and, you know, sometimes admittedly, you know, day of, it's a Friday, you're brewing it. You don't want to have to like get a video from the bar manager. You're coming in on Saturday. So I might get talked into a million, but you want to keep those cell counts low. And the reason being that fan we were just talking about, you get a lot of it to eat up. You've got very active yeast because you've designed that in your schedule. And I want all this ridiculous 32 Plato all malt work fan to be eaten up. That is why we've selected a blend of Golden Promise and Maris Otter. Maris Otter is awesome for, you know, all the Bill fans out there. Um, I think, uh, you know, everybody's got the Maris Otter shirt and whatever. The barley wine is life, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, Golden Promise, especially from Simpsons, has even a lower fan content, trying to work that in our favor, lower protein content. Um, high mash temp, low amounts of caramel malts, more than the color reflects. Um, again, just trying to keep anything that has oxidative properties or substrates for extracting them out of the beer, um, and keeping, you know, precursors for aldehyde formations out of the beer and then having a yeast situation is just going to chew all that up. Because if you were to name the worst case scenario for microbiology in a brewery, putting beer in wood with micro oxygen, a beer that's going to finish an eight Plato with a plethora of free amino nitrogen. I mean, that's a playground for wild yeast to come in. So, you know, to the best of your ability, which is almost an impossible equation, this is kind of the last tube we got to jump through, is is getting that, you know, under-pitched yeast to have massive cell growth. And that aids in one of the other goals in our checkboxes, which was pushing this ester profile while keeping fusels low. Fan high, it's going to hurt us on the fusels. If we've got the amount that the yeast can eat up, we're going to keep fusels low pitch cold, longer fermentation, and try to extend that growth period. Um, I think all play a great role in making really great high-gravity beer that doesn't drink excessively boozy. And we use a lot of these same ideas. When you say pitch cold, what does that mean? Uh, for, I mean, for that yeast, probably 62 and a half, 63 degrees, hold it. You know, we're normally pitching 002 around 64 and a half and fermenting for 66 and a half for... 24 hours, then going to 70. Here we're going to go 62, 63, um, and then move it up like two degrees every 24 hours. Like hold at 65 and just keep going gradually up and really controlling the pace at which that fermentation is going to happen. It's scary because you think you might be making, you know, caramel syrups right, at some point right, if right. it doesn't keep going. You're going to just put, make this thing stall. Um, but, you know, I think that's... Yeah. Where, where picking yeast strains that are in incredibly healthy shape early on gives you the confidence that, like, you know, we don't want, uh, especially in these products. I mean, consumers, when they're paying, you know, $17 for this 500 ml bottle or $25 for big bottles or, you know, whatever you're seeing for these high end barley wines. Right. But, you know, when the stakes are that high, you can't, like, your strategy can't be for, like, I hope this goes decently. You know, it, so I think uh, we work with um, those strategies to try to create this, you know, like I was describing, you're jumping through a number of hoops. And it's like, how can we have this very ester forward beer 
with low fusel alcohols, considering we're going to have a 15% alcohol product being put in the in the barrel at the end. Uh, that is nuanced with yeast character, has huge caramel and toffee notes, which an easy solution to that in beer design would also be to choose a lot of caramel malts. Can't do that uh, because, I mean, you can do that, but again, the longevity of that beer in the barrel or in the bottle that you have that's three years old starts diminishing. So uh, also trying to keep overall hop load relatively low. Um, all these things that favor longevity and favor, you know, oxidation that will be more sherry and toffee-like and not be uh, papery uh, or help in the formation of off-putting aldehyde kind of formations uh, or, or precursors to trans-tunano. So how can you not make it papery? How can you not make it stale but make it sherry? Um, you know, and not in the not literally sherry, but you know what I'm saying. How do you get those positive oxidative right, notes right. and make it taken on beautifully with age? And I think, you know, like I said, I've are never... There, are there specific malts that you lean to now? You know, you've mentioned that you're using a lot of Marisotter and you're using a, a lot of Golden Promise. Um, you know, but when I look at this, there's like a, a nice brown barley wine color. As I get further down in the glass, I see that color is lighter than it may have looked when I initially poured it, um, you know, but then at the same time, you're only boiling it for two hours. And so you're not just getting a six or a 12 hour, like Maillard, you know, boiled down kind of, you know, deep color to it. Where, where, what's the, you know, what's the secret sauce in that, that is adding this kind of richness color, toffee and caramel character, you know, but doing it without adding this oxidative character. So, um, two pieces, a, we use, I mean, this recipe I, verbatim is 4%, uh, flaked maize to actually reduce our fan. Uh, and then is 50%, I mean, minus acid malt, which I can't spit off the top, you know, for whatever pH sure, control, sure. do whatever makes sense to get that right. Um, you know, but effectively we're targeting almost like pale ale type numbers, you know, going into a fermenter at 5.1 to 5.2 pH, um, you know, regular mash pH is uh, 4% crystal 120, and that's it. But we double mash it, and that, I mean, there's a humongous amount of malt that goes into this. Um, so I think a lot of times people are unaware how much um, color you can get by just using a literally a shit ton of base malt. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you know, we rely on that and let those colors. I, I just poured some more j just for science, you know, just, yeah. just cause I have to look at this in, in the glass and admire its opacity and, uh, you know, and kind of nutty Brown color. No, I mean, it's, it is surprising. Anytime we talk about it, I mean, it looks, if you were to make ESB, for example, which as I mentioned, I've made, you know, a lot in my career at Hogshead, um, that would be like a 10% C77 or C120 kind of beer. Um, but that isn't necessary when you get into these crazy malt loads um, where literally we're running off 100% base malt beer, um, collecting a 24 Play-Doh mash, and then running that back into what would be, you know, a imperial style beer, but using the first runnings as our strike liquor. Um, and we're running off like 44 Play-Doh first runnings. I mean, it's absurd. I mean, to put that in perspective, 
maple syrup is like 52 <laughs> you know so i mean it's yeah shit is thick like we literally have to do, like get hot water 180 degree water and blend it 50 50 with it to get any reading on a density meter or anything i mean it's obscenely thick liquid <laughs> um yeah. and and the richness comes from that just that density of flavor and um so yeah i mean that's that's how we're thinking about barley wine and then um the other big key to this beer which um if you couldn't tell i'm very proud of is you hire phil joyce to blend the barrels at the end um that guy crushes it um you know i'm part of like picking out which barrels we are looking for what um, in this case, what you're drinking is a blend of a, a XO cognac barrel blended with, um, we might not even have to read the side of the bottle, but I want to say it's a Heaven Hill bourbon barrel. Um, and, you know, our bourbon barrel this year had one unused bourbon barrel, like Dickel. Ooh, got me. Um, another great. That was just my Alex Rebecca move, having to like somehow correct you on your, uh, your own statement there. Uh, well, like I said, all I did was just read the label. No, I mean, I could have done that. I wish I had. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we get it. And then we also think about that too, when we're designing these beers is like what types of barrels will promote, uh, characters. Like, like I said, that we're looking for soft, um, minimizing alcohol, toffee, caramel, and then high fruit content, you know, how do you punch this up? Well, cognac jumps to mind as kind of checking off all those boxes. Like it almost sounds like I just described cognac when saying that. So that one was easy. Um, and then that Dickel bourbon, I think it won bourbon of the year this year, I believe. But uh, maybe it was 2019. Is that a Dickel bottle and bond? Yeah. And, you know, but you're thinking about that big, sweet, burnt, burnt you know, burnt sure. sugar character. And, you know, how do these components work and, and having great relationships with barrel brokers, everybody, you know, yada, 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 everybody does that. Um, but not for it to be minimized. I think it's very important, you know, um, Rocky Mountain Barrel Company, NOAA, the Kentucky Barrel Brokers, I mean, just some awesome dudes we're working with that get us, we tell them what we're looking for, they work with us on profile and that we're creating multiple versions of this Louis and what each version's where it's going to be driven by barrels. We've got the bourbon barrel Louis, the double barrel Louis, and then King Louis was our member barrel that was just single barrel cognac. Um, what do hops look like in this beer? Um, what do you use? And, uh, you know, what is the overall like, kind of IBU goal? Obviously, these beers are going to live for a while in barrels. And so, um, you know, you want to give them some structure that'll allow them to, to hold up to that without the hops kind of dominating and uh, taking over the flavor. No, definitely. And I think, you know, we've moved that number around as this series has developed. I mean, I think that original bottle you have, you know, we were targeting more like a 13% alcohol beer and like an eight and a half, nine Play-Doh finishing gravity. I think the one you're drinking is closer to 10 uh, and we've gone from 29 to 32 on the starting. Um, and so we, you know, it's a moving target. Um, but effectively, I think a lot of people get afraid to put any hops in these beers and then you get this marshmallow thing that's cool up front that is just cloying and outrageous and bordering on offensive after you've had more than three or four ounces. So on this particular version, and again, you know, maybe one of the four guys I make beer with is just going to laugh at this because I'm just dead wrong. But I feel like uh, it's about 40 to 45 IBUs uh, calculated, again, not tested. Um, we've been as high as 55 
um, in this year's batch, which was, you know, we keep trying to push the limits of how, how big we can make them going into barrel. Um, but I think what's key there is just targeting residual sweetness and almost using those, like, not that it's a real metric, but finishing, you know, finishing gravity divided by IBUs to give, render some number and then trying to, you know, if you like that level of residual, uh, bitterness, if you can even call that in this, but you know, balance against sweetness might be a better description. Um, you know, using that as a relative number to jump off. I mean, it's a made yeah. up unit, but it gives you something right. And it's like, Hey, we're mashing at 157 this year, 158. And we're pushing those limits of where we think we're going to finish as we, you know, push the Play-Doh even higher and higher starting in the, in the mash temp. So maybe we're pushing IBUs, you know, even further, you know, it's a relative number every year. Um, and it's a fun time of year. We're actually just got barrels uh, of stout and barley wine being sent off to get tested uh, at labs. Did us, you know, of barrels we're excited about for early blends for members and stuff. So already tasting, you know, last year's beer and, and starting to think about, um, you know, what Louie looks like in 2022, which is crazy. You know, you have to be thinking <laughs> like that, but in 2022. Yeah. So, um, it's fun though. And it's, it's, um, um, you know, I talk about this with the breweries I've already mentioned in this talk. If you don't think you're making the best beer that's in that conversation every single time, there's a lot of easier ways to make money that are more fulfilling. Like Westbound and Down without a doubt is in this because we think we bring some of the conversation every time we make beer. Um, and, that is arrogant and we are aware of it. Um, but it isn't because like we want to be arrogant. It's just because we are literally trying that hard. We're staying up at night. Like we got a team of guys that this is what they think about. This is what they dream about. This is, you know, what they're doing. And I, and that's what craft beer is. That's why it's an amazing field. You talk to, like I said, I've just named easily three other breweries in Colorado that I'm good friends with that all have that approach. And, you know, Hutch literally before, world beer cup was canceled was texting me knowing we entered session ipa and he's like um you know phil texted him hey you want to make a bet on the session ipa um you know category and uh and hutch said something like what do you want to bet and phil was coming out with whatever he's like how about whoever wins get us gets a shiny plaque and if you need to know what it looks like come by our hallway we got four or five of them hanging up and uh and so you know and I would never describe, I mean, Hutch is one of the most humble sure, people I sure. know, but my point being, uh, everybody who I love in this industry yeah. is hungry as hell. Um, For and they sure. want more and they want to, and they believe they're, you know, they believe in themselves and they believe that they're continuously getting better. And if you weren't, it would be boring. I mean, waking up and thinking you've already done your best work is best sad and kind of depressing. Um, potentially worse. And I think waking up and thinking every day we're getting better and we're on this chase, it's almost nice because now we're coming for you again next year and best beers of the year, you know? Um, so, so know. Jake, the way we normally finish things off is the, you know, the classic question, what does success look like for Westbound and down? Um, well, I feel like we've somewhat been talking on it, uh, in the ways of, you know, defining goals and, and figuring out how you get through those hoops. And I think we think about our company that same way. Um, I know one of the hoops is we never want to stop making the best beer we think is possible. 
Um, and then, you know, if we can have, um, you know, that's goal number one, that's hoop number one, we got to get through that. And then we think about um, whether we can create great experiences. We love making food with beer. We plan on doing that in the space we're sitting right now. So I know we're going to continue focusing on uh, making that world-class beer and then having great chefs put awesome um, complimentary food with it in a great experience, whether that's take-home beer or from us. Um, and then, you know, the last hoop is uh, whether we can keep growing as people and giving back to the community and being part of the awesome Colorado craft beer community. If we can get through all those hoops, um, which again, you know, kind of have that same deal where it's the easiest way to get through any one of those hoops might not be the same way, might make one of the other hoops harder. So if we can thread the needle through those, um, that's how we'll define success at Westbound. That sounds good. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Try Leopold Brothers Malt from BSG. Mountain Rose Herbs offers the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Yakima Valley Hops is your hop source, whether you're brewing five gallons or five barrels. ABS Commercials giving away a Keg Viking keg washer live on December 5th. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. So, Jake, if people want to learn more about Westbound and Down, what you all do, the locations that you have, and the beer that you make, uh, where do they find you guys? Uh, Westboundanddown.com, at Westboundanddown Brewing, I believe. You you (laughs) promised me this moment was coming, and I I think I botched it anyways. Um, And then... Uh, but Instagram and Facebook, easy to find on Facebook. Um, and then I've got the handle, come on, internet. Um, Westbound and Down Brewing Co. Uh, at Westbound and Down Brewing Co. is our Instagram. I think that's the easiest place to catch us. You hop on right now, you can see the newest update about uh, the beer we released today for Hops and Pies' 10th anniversary. You told me I'd get a shameless plug in, so I'm, I'm punching it. Um, their 10th anniversary Saturday, we made a special version of Westbound IPA uh, with Pacific Sunrise Hops. That's really fun. Um, and it's got cartoon pictures of their faces on the logo. It's quite fun beer. I'm sending you home with some. Nice, and that's, nice. uh, yeah, that's all I got. But um, yeah, thanks for and listening. It? Hopefully, we'll edit this down from the hour and 45 <laughs> minutes or whatever. Maybe cut out some of the West Coast. We're, we're in an hour and 46 minutes. Uh, you know, if you're driving through uh, Idaho Springs, Colorado, definitely stop at the brew pub. And uh, once this location in Lafayette, Colorado gets up and running, definitely check them out here. Jake Gardner, head brewer for uh, Westbound and Down Brewing in uh, Idaho Springs and now Lafayette, Colorado. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Jamie. It was awesome. Cheers. I thank you. Thanks, man. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.